Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I apologize up front because any listeners are going to be hearing about this for the uh, next couple of months. We're going to Paris. It's true. Uh, if you want to get in on that trip, because listeners can come with us, uh, you just go to our website. There is an option in the menu bar at the top of the page that says Paris trip exclamation point because of excitement. And then that will give you all the details on booking. Uh, because we are going on this Paris trip in June, I have a little bit of the rabies about f- France topics. <laughs> so, uh you're getting a two-parter on a French topic this week because I'm very excited. And it yeah. is a thing we will visit, at least I will visit for sure when we are there. Literally everyone, everyone has heard of what we call in the U.S. the Eiffel Tower. It's actually a fell, but uh, that's a whole other thing. Uh, that one structure itself and its construction could easily be the subject of multiple episodes because there's a whole fascinating story, particularly from the engineering and building standpoint uh, there. but. The engineer it is named for, Gustave Eiffel, contributed a great deal more to the world than that one iconic structure. Uh, So we will talk about the building of the Tour Eiffel, but uh, we won't cover it in complete uh, exhaustive detail. And Gustave Eiffel's early life actually showed no indication that he was going to end up famous for his engineering work. And his later life actually went in a totally different direction. And his expertise in ironwork was sought for projects throughout Europe and South America. He also worked on one of the most iconic structures in the United States as well. And his career is interesting to me because it's mostly an impressive series of successes, except for one colossal scandal. Like, I feel like often when we talk about somebody who has become iconic historically, it's like we're revealing all of the struggle and all of the the mistakes they made along the way. And in this case, it's kind of like, yep, he did that, and it was on time and under budget. And also that other one was on time and under budget. And also this one was on time and under budget because he was very exacting. <laughs> so this is a little bit different uh, than the the I messed up a lot and then I made a great thing. It's more like I made a lot of great stuff. People just only remember one. I was very competent. <laughs> yes, I was extraordinarily good at what I did. Uh, and we will talk about some criticisms of him as well. But in the first part of this two-parter, we're going to talk about his early family life and how he eventually found himself working with what were very modern materials for the time. He kind of stumbled into it. Uh, And then in the second part, which will be the next episode, we will delve into some of his most famous projects, as well as the surprising turn that his efforts took in his later years. Alexandre Gustave Eiffel was born December 15, 1832. His family was originally from Germany. His great-great-grandfather had moved to Paris in the early 1700s, and the family trade was tapestry weaving up until Alexandre Bunnikhausen Eiffel, who was Gustave's father, went into military service instead of becoming a weaver. The elder Alexandre married Gustave's mother, Catherine Melanie Meneuz, in the fall of 1824 while he was stationed in Dijon. That's roughly 200 miles southeast of Paris. Gustave had two sisters born after him. There were Marie, who was born in 1834, and Laure, born in 1836. 
And Catherine was not a woman who married and had kids and then stayed home to raise them. She was a little unique for her time. She was actually an entrepreneur with a very astute business instinct. And not long after she became a mother, she decided that she would take her family's business, which was charcoal, and expand it. And she arranged for her company to become the distributor of coal from more mines throughout France than they already had uh, in order to capitalize on the growing need for coal in industry. So both parents had very busy careers, but the family was very close. Gustave and his mother especially were close, but Catherine and Alexander also prioritized their children, all of their children, and offered them an example of a dedicated work ethic and a marriage of equals. When Catherine's coal business started to grow really quickly, Alexander left his civil administrator job to go work with her, and together they built a pretty nice fortune for the family. Eventually, they moved into a brewery business, and they kept doing well there, but they were also seen as outsiders in high society. That was really dominated by old-money families who had been wealthy for generations, so their new money just didn't have the same shine to it. Yeah, they did not have clout in high society circles. And they weren't actually running that brewery. They had just made a big investment in it after they sold their their coal uh, company. I should also mention that uh, you'll often see that Gustav and his sisters were raised largely by their grandmother on his mother's side, which she they did stay with her the majority of the time, but both Catherine and Alexandre made a point to always go home and spend time with their children and, and be with them as much as they could. Gustave also became close with his chemist uncle, Jean-Baptiste Mollerat, who ran a large distillery. And Mollerat's friend, Michel Perret, also an industrial chemist who made a name for himself in mineral mining. And these two men were pretty highly influential in the development of Eiffel's worldview. Both believed basically in questioning everything. Uh, his uncle was particularly anti-royalist. And both uh, thought that you should question things both philosophically and scientifically. Gustave found school to be really challenging. It was boring at best and excruciating at worst, but two of his teachers really ignited a love of learning for him when he got to be a teenager. He had a literature teacher named Monsieur Clemenset and a history teacher named Monsieur Desjardins, and their entry into his education really inspired him to continue it. They helped him get caught up on his work, which he had fallen behind on by being disengaged. Yeah, I saw one estimate that he was like a year behind his peers because he had just stopped bothering. <laughs> yeah. They also helped him gain admission into the Collège Sainte-Barbe in Paris, which they hoped would lead him to getting entry into École Polytechnique to finish up his education. And the young Eiffel had traveled to Paris from Dijon for the first time when he was 12. And during that trip, which he took with his mother, he really fell in love with the city. But even though he had seemed entirely excited as a slightly older young man to attend school there, he pretty quickly became homesick after he started at Collège Sainte-Barbe. He eventually found amusements in seeking out opportunities, for example, to dance with young ladies. He made a note that he preferred dancing with English girls rather than French girls because he found them less reserved. And he also would attend the occasional seance. So he wasn't really focusing on his studies. Uh, he didn't get really passionate about his education. He kind of sat right in the middle of his class achievement-wise. After his second year, his performance on his exams hadn't been good enough to get him entry into École Polytechnique. So instead, he went to École Centrale. He didn't seem very dismayed by this change in plans, and the need to go to a less prestigious school didn't seem to phase him all that much. He wasn't focused on engineering or metallurgy in his studies. Those are things that you might expect of the man who had become known for building these massive iron structures. 
When it came time to select a concentration, he went into chemistry, probably thinking he might eventually take over his uncle's business, although due to a politically generated falling out in the family, that never really happened. No, as I said, his uncle was very outspoken and liked to question everything, and uh, that caused some problems (laughs) with other members of the family. Gustave graduated from École Centrale in 1855, and while he had focused on chemistry and actually had really done pretty well in those studies for a change, he also had a pretty well-rounded education. 1855 was also the year that Eiffel asked his mother for a season pass to the Exhibition Universelle in Paris. London's Great Exhibition of 1851, which has come up on this podcast a number of times before, including Joseph Paxton's Crystal Palace, had been a massive success, and the French were eager to outdo it, in part because they felt that they had invented the idea of having these sort of world's fairs, and that the British had stolen the concept from them and then acted as though it was their own. But in any case, uh, Paris in 1855 was alive with this desire to show off the best and the brightest in the newly constructed Palais de l'Industrie on the Champs-Élysées. In fact, the Exposition Universelle had really carved out a different space from the London Expo in terms of national identity and areas of expertise. So as the animosity waned and Britain and France started building a more cordial relationship, which was cemented by Queen Victoria's visit to the Parisian Expo, the French started focusing more on showcasing their taste for design and art instead of making a real run at trying to shame Britain's more industrial and manufacturing-focused show that had happened four years prior. Prior. And Gustave Eiffel was on hand to see and explore all of this. And while that experience must have been enthralling and very exciting, young Gustave eventually had to figure out a career path. And we will get to that right after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Since the plan to take over his uncle's distillery was no longer in place by the time he graduated from school, Eiffel took a foundry apprenticeship with his brother-in-law, Joseph Collin. And this was not a paying position, so while Eiffel used the opportunity to learn as much as he could about iron founding, he also started looking for a permanent job with an income immediately. The next year, 1856, Eiffel visited the offices and workshop of Charles Nippeux in the 8th arrondissement as one of a series of visits that he made to inquire after work. This was a pretty fortuitous visit because Nippeux was already at the forefront of the railway industry. He designed both tracks and engines, and he offered Gustave Eiffel a job. Eiffel would work as the private secretary and would get an on-the-job education in engineering and material science while he was at it. At the same time, Eiffel took economics classes through a Sunday program at École de Mines. Yeah, uh, the École de Mines was basically letting him have a private tutorship and getting full course credit for it so that he could continue his work. And it is kind of funny to me, this is sort of that case of somebody just stumbling into what ends up being the thing that defines them because he was visiting a lot of different offices and places along the way when he happened to meet with Nebveux and just kind of struck his moment. But this all seems ideal, uh, but Nebveux was in some serious financial trouble after a really expensive project that he had been working on had gone completely awry. And one day, Nebveux just didn't show up at the office, and for two weeks, he was missing, and the business's bills and management went completely unattended. And Eiffel was actually afraid that his new boss had killed himself. There were some clues that Eiffel had put together and really feared for this man's life, but in reality... 
he seems to have had a nervous breakdown. And after he returned to work, Gustav actually stayed with Nebva to help him close up the business, even though he knew he was not going to get paid for these efforts because, as we said, deep financial trouble. But Nebva did find Eiffel a new job at La Compagnie des Chemins de Fer de l'Ouest. That's the Western Railway Company. And this was not the end of his relationship, though, with Nebva. Gustave earned 125 francs a month in his new position and worked with the chief engineer as the company kept expanding its considerable railway holdings. That chief engineer was Eugene Flachat, who was an innovator in the use of sheet metal ironwork. At this point, iron as an architectural material was still pretty new in France, and Flachat had been a significant contributor in the slow acceptance in France. England was a bit ahead of France in incorporating iron into construction and had been experimenting with it all the way back in the 1700s. Yeah, some of that was uh, economic. Like, it was just expensive to start experimenting with this new material, and France did not have the money or interest in spending the money to do that. And also some of it was aesthetic. They weren't really ready to adopt this new thing yet. That will come up in part two as well. (laughs) But with the railway, Eiffel designed his first structure. It was a bridge, 72 feet. uh, That's just short of 22 meters that would be constructed with cast iron and sheet iron. And this design was approved for construction for the Saint-Germain Railway. At the same time, Nipveau was working to sell off his company, which he had never really been good at running. He wanted to sell it to a larger firm that would pay him to continue to do engineering and design work without having to worry about all the administrative tasks that he just couldn't get a handle on trying to run his own business. He sold to a Belgian company and not only got the position he wanted, but also arranged for Gustave Eiffel to be given a senior position in the French office as head of research, which paid 250 francs a month. Yeah, that was a big jump for him. That doubled his income. He went from being like an entry-level employee to a senior employee at a different company. It was a a nice way of saying, thank you for sticking with me in that whole messy business a while back. Uh, And with the new Belgian company, Nebveu secured a high-profile project. This is a bridge over the Garonne River at Bordeaux that would link two previously separated rail systems. And Charles Nebveu entrusted Eiffel with the metal assembly. He ran the entire side of that operation. And this was no small ask because the project was huge and it had only a 24-month window for completion. The project didn't just involve the Iron Bridge. Before the construction could even start, Eiffel had to set up workshops and a temporary service bridge at the site so that the ironwork could be assembled there before it was installed. But Eiffel managed all of this and the bridge work itself very efficiently. He used hydraulic pile driving, which is a really new technique, to drive hollow caissons into the riverbed that could serve as workspaces during construction. And as a side note, caisson disease, decompression sickness characterized by the formation of gas bubbles in the body when a person moves quickly from a high-pressure environment to a lower-pressure environment, is in fact named for this construction technique because these caissons would be pressurized so that people could work in them underwater and then they would go back to regular uh, topside (laughs) without really any transition time. Uh, But there is no record of any such illness happening on a Fels-Bordeaux bridge project. The only injury on record took place when a riveter fell into the river during construction. And Gustave Eiffel jumped into the water to rescue the worker, and then he instituted a series of new safety measures immediately after the whole thing was done. 
including uh, the men always had to be tethered with a rope if they were riveting up on the bridge. And it should be noted, though, that the laborer who fell was actually believed to have been intoxicated at the time of the accident. So uh, while, of course, they needed all these safety measures, he was not being safe on the job to begin with. Part of the reason that Eiffel was so efficient was that he was very precise in his design and calculations. While other engineers were developing designs through trial and error, he was doing really meticulous math before the project started to make sure that his ideas were structurally sound. This bridge was a success, and it led to Eiffel's promotion in 1860 to engineer general. He was given a salary of 9,000 francs a year, plus a 5% share of the profits on any of his projects, he could also not be dismissed with less than a year's notice. Yeah, that's a, a sweet deal. And at this point, Gustave Eiffel was successful. He was stable, and he was in his late 20s. And what he really, really wanted was a family of his own. And he had dated a number of women, and he even tried to become engaged to one of the, the young ladies that he had dated, but her family did not think he was of high enough social standing. That's kind of his what we talked about a moment ago with his parents being very successful but never quite being accepted by uh, the wealthier high society, kind of coming back to bite him. But he reunited with a young woman from his hometown of Dijon that he had known since childhood, and there he finally found his match. Gustave married Marie Godelet on July 8, 1862. Marie, who went by Marguerite, was the granddaughter of one of the Eiffel family business partners, so blending the two families was a pretty natural fit. The two of them went on to have five children. The first was a daughter named Claire, who was born in 1863, which was the year after their wedding. Yeah, she, uh, one thing that I read suggested that she had just started going by Marguerite to make things easier since uh, his mother was a Marie, and so they would be easy to to differentiate <laughs> when people were speaking about them. And this marriage was a happy one. But unfortunately, a series of problems unfolded in Eiffel's life soon after the wedding. While he had been promoted again by the company, it quickly became apparent that there were some serious problems with finances and the business was not stable anymore. And he knew he had to get out. And so uh, after putting together a few independent projects and some consulting contracts, he decided he would just set out on his own and go into business for himself. At the same time, he and his new bride took on the full-time care of Gustave's sister, Laure, who had some serious health problems. She died in the summer of 1864, and Gustave, who really doted on both of her, his sisters, grieved very deeply. So he was in the midst of personal and professional upheaval as he and Marguerite were starting their family. Fortunately, that move, though, to work for himself proved to be a really good one. In the spring of the following year, Eiffel traveled to Egypt as part of a lucrative government contract he had gotten in which he was managing the manufacture of a large order of locomotives, like several dozen engines. While touring northern Africa, he visited the Suez Canal construction site, and he made the acquaintance of Ferdinand de Lesseps, whose company was building it. De Lesseps and Gustave's business relationship with him would later be the cause of a great deal of trouble for Eiffel, but that is going to come up in the second part of this episode. When the French government decided to host another expo in 1867, Gustave Eiffel hoped to be involved in construction of the main hall. But while he had been working on a lot of projects, he didn't have a workshop of his own, so there wasn't any way that he could capture a big contract for this exhibition. Instead, he served as an assistant to Jean-Baptiste Kruntz, who was the director of works, and designed, among other things, the arch girders for one of the galleries, 
which established the mathematical design rules of all wrought iron construction going forward. Yeah, he was working really constantly on a lot of projects. And as we had said, he was very, very careful and meticulous with his math. And he really set down a lot of the rules that builders used going forward from that point. And while his work on the exhibition was productive, even before the show opened, Gustave had begun looking for a place to set up his own ironworks so that he would not lose out on future opportunities. In late 1866, he had secured a location in northern Paris to do just that, and he began advertising his availability to design and build projects from boilers to reservoirs. We will talk about his early days offering full engineering and construction services in just a moment, but we're going to pause before we do and have a sponsor break. It was not an easy run for Gustave Fell getting his business off the ground. While he did get a fair amount of work, it was all relatively small contracts. He built things like small bridges and gasworks, and even the iron framework for a synagogue, but large-scale projects were at least initially few and far between. In October 1868, Gustave Fell started a partnership with another École Centrale alum to form the firm Gustave Fell et Compagnie. His partner, Théophile Serig, was the junior partner, although he fronted a lot more money than Eiffel did. Their initial contract was for five years and was renewed when it expired. And Eiffel continued to work really steadily throughout the end of the 1860s and basically established himself as the authority on iron bridge and railway construction. And during this time, he developed many of the standards in both design and construction processes that remained in place for decades. But he really wanted to move beyond primarily building bridges and start working on buildings. But as he looked into expanding his skills into grander efforts, his actual work became more scarce. As the 1860s neared their end, there was unrest in France as Napoleon III was facing growing resentment after making a number of bad moves that left France without many allies in the period leading up to the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, that's the very, very, very quick and dirty version of that. Uh, For Eiffel, he was more concerned with his business and its health than he really seemed to be with politics, but he became a sergeant in the National Guard, and he sent Marguerite and their children away from Paris when things got a little bit dicey during the uprising, but mostly he was just really irritated that he couldn't get to his work because parts of the city were closed off. While the trouble in France was playing out, Eiffel sought out work outside of the country to try to keep his business afloat. He sent one of his associates to South America to work on deals there and continued to drum up projects in Europe and Northern Africa. The South American efforts were very successful, and Eiffel's firm was soon building railways and churches and government buildings. Working abroad when his firm was responsible for the entire project start to finish, rather than serving as a consultant, came with its own challenges. So, for example, what would happen if something was wrong with the assembly once they got it on site? It was not feasible to expect a job to halt in Peru, for example, so that a part could be cast in France and then shipped over the Atlantic. So for those South American contracts, Gustave Eiffel would first build the structure at his ironworks in Le Valois-Perret in the northwest section of Paris to make sure they were perfect. And then those structures would be taken apart and shipped in pieces to their final destination where those pieces were reassembled. But in 1873, this lucrative avenue of his business ended when his Latin American business manager, Monsieur Lelievre, died. 
He had been the one man that Afel had really trusted to handle contracts overseas, and without him, he knew it was just not going to work. Yeah, he felt like he could not possibly train someone up to be able to do the things that Lelièvre was doing. And also, he could not build up the level of trust that he had had with that man. So he thought it was better to just shutter that part of his business. And this is kind of a downer place to leave things, but we are going to end part one here so that we can keep some of his most famous efforts together in part two. And I also just kind of wanted to do it as like a juxtaposition because once he gets into the second part of his life, it's all really like... Success, success, success. Whereas I wanted to kind of keep this one separate because it's it's a little bit of foundering and figuring things out that uh, he was doing as a young man, and I like that. Yeah, uh, that good old Gustave Eiffel. Uh, do you have some listener mail for us? I do, I do, I do. One is from our listener, Tracy, who writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a longtime listener who shares your love of postcards, so I thought I would send you one from Maui. So I'm just going to be honest right now. I read this because I'm selfish, and I love Hawaii, and it made me think of tropical things when it's very cold outside. <laughs> uh, but Tracy goes on to say, I adore your show. I learned so much and appreciate how accessible you make complicated historical stories. Uh, she also apparently likes the way I laugh, which I appreciate. Not everyone does. Uh, thank you so much, Tracy. This is beautiful, and it makes me want to go to Hawaii as soon as possible. Uh, we also have another one from our listener, Stacy. I did not mean to do only rhyming people's names on our listener mail segment. Stacy writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, greetings from the Antarctic Peninsula. My wife and I are on a 10-day excursion to Antarctica, and I have always wanted to send you a postcard, so here it is. I love your show, and I listen as I drive to and from work. Keep up the great work, Stacy." And it's a lovely picture from Antarctica, which I... Uh, also feel a strange affinity for because one of my dearest friends spent a significant amount of time there doing scientific research. <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you to both Tracy and Stacy for sending us postcards. If you would like to write to us, that is easy as pie. You can do it at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us pretty much everywhere on social media as Missed in History. Uh, and you can go to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and see every episode of the show that has ever existed, as well as uh, show notes on any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on together. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, that sounds great. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 